Happy Halloween, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades, a.k.a. All Hallowtide, a.k.a. Hallowtide, a.k.a. The Autumn Triduum. Today, I have a little variety show planned for you guys, because it's Halloween. This is one of the coolest days of the year, one of the spookiest days of the year. And I call it a variety show, which I don't normally do. I do one theme per show, typically, here on Rules for Retrogrades. Because today, I want a treat of spooky in the fun sense. So I have my Memento Mori skull next to me. I treat of Halloween in the historical Catholic sense to disabuse lots of Catholic Puritans out there of the notion that Halloween is some sort of pagan day of shame. It's not. It's deeply historically Catholic, and we're going to talk about that right off the bat. And I'm going to talk about the spookiest thing entering the church and entering the world this Halloween. Uh, It's something that has been on the grow over the last couple of years and had its coming out party at Franciscan University earlier in October, this October. And I'm going to talk about an event a debate I'm doing that involves that spooky swamp creature. I'll give you a little hint. It's creeping, crawling Catholic socialism going by the name post-liberalism. We're going to do that in a second, or in other cases, integralism. We're going to do that at the end of the show. But first off, for starters, let's talk for just a brief moment about what the Holotide is. I'm teaching you from the homeschool lesson that we ran for our kids today. All Saints Tide, Hollow Tide, the Triduum of the Fall is October the 31st, November 1st, All Hollows Day, All Saints Day, and November the 2nd, All Souls Day. Uh, This is a three-day celebration of the faithful departed, centering around November the 1st. The day before and the day after we celebrate for different reasons. Today is the eve of the Faithful Departed's special holiday. And November the 2nd is, I guess, a kind of ecumenical bone we throw to all the other people that have ever died that aren't necessarily faithful. All All Souls Day. I don't know so much about November the 2nd. But um, All Saints Day tomorrow is called Hollow Mess, kind of like Christmas or Candlemas. And it is a very big deal in the Catholic Church, but it wasn't always celebrated on November the 1st. Of course, the day before it is the eve, and in years past, in the ancient early church, when that day was celebrated, Hollow Mass, uh, in the spring, which is a weird time to celebrate all souls or all saints, of course, the day before Hollow Mass in April, of all places, was the equivalent of Halloween. It just made no sense, which is why it got switched. So here's a bit of history for you. And then we'll get into our real show. Pope Gregory III, uh, who was Pope for, I think, about 11 or 12 years, starting in 731 AD, set the current date of Halloween and the entire Hallowtide. Before Gregory III, Halloween was in April, which is odd because April is spring. It's the beginning of the year. Spring represents new life, both chronologically and naturally. Autumn represents diminishing life, death, dying, both chronologically, it's the end of the year, and naturally. Uh, Trees that are non-deciduous come to their death. Many animals either hibernate or die in the late fall. And that's what we're preparing for. So it made sense for Pope Gregory III to move Halloween, All Saints, and All Souls from the spring, where it really made no sense. It existed there for about 700 years of Christianity. In, I think it was the year 731, the first year of his pontificate. might have been the second year of his pontificate. That change to Halloween happened in AD 31, or, uh, sorry, AD 731, or AD 732. Halloween's new date wouldn't really become a popular Christian holiday the way it is now. I'm going to address those who think it's not a popular Christian holiday in a second. Until the beginning of the second Christian millennium, it was in the 11th century that popes besides Gregory III really, uh, I don't want to say ordered it to be celebrated, but really recognized the import, the, the, the importance 
of having a fall triduum. Not a, not a spring triduum where we have Easter, the most important triduum of the year, but a fall one where we recognize, yes, Jesus' uh, resurrection from the cross at Easter and at that triduum in the spring represents new life. But first, we must go through the spookiness of death. And it became, in the 11th century, a wide celebration. So over the last Christian millennium, it's a thing. So here's my spooky skull here. I can make him, uh, I can do a little puppet show if you <laughs> There you go. He's a female skeleton. She's a female skeleton. Don't sure, skeleton. sure. Yeah, sir. Um, okay, so I get, I, I've addressed this lots. I, it's, it's a boring thing to address, but it's most appropriately addressed on Halloween. What is the deal with my capuchin monk back here, who's really dope? He's based in Red Pilled. He goes by the expression that all the capuchin monks, his brethren, not emblematic brethren, but his real-life brethren at the capuchin crypt in Barberini Piazza in Rome went by, which uh, went like this, quad sumus hoceritis, fuimus quandoque quaestis. This means what we are now you soon will be what you are now we once were. Spooky. Memento mori. Remember your death. Halloween, the Tide, All Saints Day, even All Souls Day is a potent reminder that this is what we're supposed to be doing, is remembering our death even as we think of the resurrection from the cross represented by Jesus' personal resurrection at the Eastertide. Yeah, if, if we're good Christians, through faith and works, we can become, we can share in Christ's divinity in heaven, with his Father in heaven. That's the best part. But that doesn't mean we get to escape death. We have to remember our death, and that's the procedure by which we will be good Christians. Or that's the one of the many means by which we will remember to be good Christians. Now, October the 31st is also a, a, a day of shame in the view of American Protestants. Uh, I could speak to American Protestants because I grew up with many of these in the South or in Texas. Um, they treat what to us is the Tide as a day of satanic shame. It is, but for a different reason than these Calvinist Protestants are thinking. It's a day of shame, especially for Protestants, because Martin Luther had his Reformation Day either the, the 30th or the 31st, depending on which historian you ask, of October. They should be ashamed of Halloween, but not because it's the devil's holiday or something like that. They should be ashamed of Halloween because they became, you know, the most noteworthy, the most widespread den of heretics, whether they're trying to or not nowadays, on Halloween, well, you know, either the 30th or the 31st. I'm addressing the psalm, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades, today because many Catholics have taken a Calvinist, Puritan approach to Halloween over the last 15 years, where they treat it like, no, we shouldn't celebrate the kind of spookiness of remembering your death. We shouldn't treat it like it's a um, the hollow mess. We shouldn't treat it like it's a triduum in the church. Well, you're wrong if you do. It's a spooky day. Other Catholics will kind of try to try to have the baby, a la Solomon, and say, well, we do celebrate it, but we make it a non-spooky thing. We only go as saints. I mean, this is a little better, but it's philosophically incoherent, if you ask me. We're remembering the saints qua their deaths and their martyrdom on November the 1st, and we're remembering all souls qua their death on November the 2nd. So you're, you're still making a lot of the same errors if you do this that the, the Calvinists are. You're still treating it like, oh, to, to, to wallow in the spookiness of death is wrong. It's really not. Steph, you have a point here. Yeah, that's why like a lot of we've we've gotten a lot of emails from people who have asked us about Tim's logo, the skull on the logo. A lot of people have written and said, Oh, it's satanic or that's demonic. And I always write them back and say, Well, check out 
the Capuchin Crypt on Wikipedia, and that's really where we got the inspiration from. And you can see that on the, the 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 top left of your screen there. That's the the hooded skull from one of the Capuchin monks, and it really is just memento mori, which is very crucial to to Cath- to, to Catholics everywhere. We celebrate the remembrance of our death, and I'm going to read you some facts about this most based crypt in Barberina Piazza, Rome, Catholic Church, Capuchin Crypt, from which I get all of these ideas in just a moment. For now, I want to encourage you, please, I beg of you, right now, I beg of you, on Halloween, one Christian brother to others and to my Christian sisters out there, like this video and subscribe to this channel. If you've been to my channel three times or more and you're not subscribed, please like and subscribe. I'm guilty of this. I follow some great NBA channels. One's called Thinking Basketball and it took me six months to subscribe. I'm not helping out the channels that I do want to actually support if I don't subscribe to them and like the videos when appropriate, when it's honest. So please do that now. Further, if you want to take the next step up in supportiveness, then become a patron today. Go to patreon.com. You could be a patron for as little as five bucks a month. It helps us to keep the red and regular lights on in here all days. And it, it really helps us. And you get cool benefits for being a patron. Go to Timothy J. Gordon's patron page. I am still in the midst of a cool patrons only set of live streams that I did for the month of October, spooky October. Um, the Aristotomous nature of Stranger Things season one. I don't speak for all seasons, but season one is very Aristotelian Thomas, very virtuous. Somehow it snuck past the gatekeeper and we're in the midst of a four-week viewing party where we view episodes before our patrons-only live streams and then we come and I give a lecture on the last two episodes. Everyone who's in it is having a great time. If you want to get this benefit and other benefits like it, I do stuff like this throughout the year, including book clubs. Become a patron today. Timothy J. Gordon at patreon.com. Last but not least, the midterm elections are now upon us. I've been talking about them for half a year. If you waited this long, it's still not quite too late. Get out of your blue state. Get to a red state. Go to realestateforlife.org and get to a red state today. I, I suggest the Southeast Atlantic region where I chose realestateforlife.org. Okay, so I'm talking about the Catholicity of the deep Catholicity of the Holotide, of Halloween. Calvinist Catholics who, who want to follow the Protestants who are ashamed of Halloween, they have a guilty conscience. Something is, something is pricking the Protestants' conscience with regard to Halloween. They don't identify what it is accurately. They think that it's evil to celebrate monsters or eat candy or something. <laughs> That's not what it really is. That's You know when something's bothering you and you feel guilty and you're not using your rightly formed conscience, you'll, you'll misidentify what it is? That's what the American Protestants do. They'll say it's wrong to have skulls that, that you can make talk. It's wrong to have skulls that say things like, remember your death. They couldn't be more inaccurate. What they really feel guilty about, it's a blocked wish. They want to become Catholics and Protestant Reformation Day is Halloween. That's what is the bug under their skin. It's fun to have a spooky day where we... we uh, Celebrate monsters and not be mad at one another. It's Mike, the great Michael <laughs> Gary Scott said. No, I mean, I'm serious. Look, we could take a little bit of the stoic wisdom from, uh, from Maximus. Gladiator's Maximus, when he says, death smiles at us all. All we can do is smile back. Now, he's wrong. That stoicism is wrong. But it could be another arrow in our quiver. What we can do is become followers of the Logos, the one way to heaven. Sorry, all other world religions. You have to follow Jesus. That's the ultimate arrow in our quiver. That's how we smile back. But we can also smile back at death a little bit by making light of it, dressing like a skull or a, a Frankenstein or a Dracula, if you will. <laughs> It's good stuff, man. Now, to prove what I'm saying, that Catholicism has 
always loved this spooky day of monsters. Look at the date that I read you before our little commercial break. 731 is when the Holotide became a, a feast day. And look at also the Capuchin crypt in Rome. I'm going to read you some factoids. Do we have our, our little um, Capuchin friend up? Yeah, and actually when Tim and I lived in Italy, we would go there quite often to this uh, chapel where they have all these skulls that you see on your screen. So we, long before Tim started the channel or started even doing any of this commentary stuff, we always had a, a very strong attachment to this chapel that's just right smack dab in the middle of Rome. You can go see it anytime you're there. So holy because you can't think of anything other than death. You cannot escape thinking of your own death. If you go to a funeral of a friend or a loved one, you could take the City Slickers challenge. You know, you can either go Bruno Kirby's attitude or Billy Crystal's attitude. Bruno Kirby says, hey, I'm not going to exchange places with the person in the casket. Billy Crystal, who has a, a dark streak in City Slickers, starts to do so, thinks of his own death. That's actually appropriate. But lots of folks out there elect the Bruno Kirby path and just say, no, it just makes me glad to be alive. Sounds positive, really is an evasion of the Christian message. When you go to the Capuchin Crypt in Barberini Piazza in Rome, anyone who has a trip to Rome planned in the near future, go. It's one of the coolest things there. You cannot avoid thinking of your own death because the message is so point and spot on. It says, you may think you have time. It insinuates you don't have time. It strongly insinuates, it says explicitly, we were not that long ago just where you are. You very soon on a grander scale of time will be right where we are. And they're holding signs and their bones some of their skin is still on. They're still in their robes. Remember your death and act accordingly. Lots of Christian men struggle with sins of the flesh, contraception, pornography. I, I can honestly say remembering your death expels that. If you treat it like you might die later today or tomorrow, which you embrace death, it chastens you. Now, the Capuchin Crypt, according to Wikipedia... Just so you know what, what to go see when you're there in Rome and you know a little bit about it before you go. There's a small space comprising several tiny chapels, linked chapel rooms, located beneath the church of Santa Maria della Concezione dei Cappuccini on the Via Veneto near Piazza Barberini in Rome. I, I think it's basically in Barberini. Uh, it contains the skeletal remains of 3,700 bodies believed to be Capuchin friars. They, they are capuchin friars, thank you, Wikipedia. Buried, buried by their order. The Catholic order insists that the display is not meant to be macabre. These are Catholics attacking it, not just Wikipedia. But a silent reminder of the swift passage of life on earth and our own mortality. That's why Halloween is so cool. That's why it's you're missing the point if you try to make Halloween about saints after they've risen. Halloween is about the death and the martyrdom and the suffering of the saints. It's not about the saints in their sainted state. Uh, you don't need to know about the, the crypt's construction, but here are the rooms. Very, very cool. Uh, J.D. de Chatelaine wrote in 1851 of this famous macabre crypt. This must be a revolting sight, said I to my friend. And what appears to be yet more disgusting is that these remains of the dead are only exposed in this manner for the sake of levying attacks on the imbecility of the living. Boom. Roasted. Boom, roasted and if you think that Memento Mori or Halloween or the intentional celebration and remembrance of death is pagan, then you are engaging in what J.D. de Chatelaine called the imbecility of the living, my, my living friend. My not undead friend. There are a total of six rooms in the crypt, five featuring a unique display of human bones believed to have been taken from the bodies of friars who had died sometime between 1528 and 1870, which is a span of about 350 years. The first one, it's just a side, kind of, kind of like going through a spooky Halloween house at a school put on by a high school or something. You walk only laterally through this long uh, six-room crypt. The first room is called the Crypt of the Resurrection. Doesn't sound very pagan to me. It features a picture of Jesus 
raising Lazarus from the dead, framed by various parts of the human skeleton. We've addressed this before, our skull. And we get so many emails so about many the skull. So many numbskulled, no offense. <laughs> we get so numb many numbskulled emails about the skull, and it's just ridiculous it's intellectually. Very, very Puritan, Protestant leaning. Catholics who are making up their own rules about what's allowed and what's not. Yeah, it's not only Protestant to celebrate or, or to avoid celebrating Halloween because you have a guilty conscience because that was Reformation Day. It's also very Protestant to make up your own rules, to say things like lots of Catholics are on Twitter today, like, I don't celebrate Halloween. Well, the church tells you to, starting in 731 A.D., Pope Gregory III tells you to. It's called the Holotide or Hollow Mess. And it even says you should celebrate in autumn, meaning you should celebrate the death. That's why Pope Gregory III moved it. Quit making up your own rules. It's very Protestant not to celebrate Halloween. And it's very Protestant to make up your own rules on October the 31st. Yeah, I like that. Make up your own rules and stop asking us to follow your ner nerdy rules. Yeah, the church wants you to celebrate monsters and eat candy. That, that's a direct quote from Gregory III. Not really. The second room of the Capuchin Crypt is the Mass Chapel. That sounds really pagan. It's an area used to celebrate Mass. It doesn't contain any bones. In the altarpiece, Jesus and Mary exhort St. Felix of Cantalice, St. Francis of Assisi, and St. Anthony of Padua. Am I patron confirmation saint, to free souls from purgatory. That sounds so pagan. Freeing souls, resurrecting souls, imploring you not to sin. The chapel contains a plaque with the acronym DOM, which stands for Deo Optimo Maximo, to God the, the best and the greatest, a term initially used to refer to the pagan god Jupiter, but claimed by later Christians. That's what we do. Yes, there are elements of Halloween or of D-O-M, that were pagan. Have you ever been to the Pantheon in Rome? It, it, we take pagan stuff, we evangelize it, and then we flout it in their faces. If you see a little bit of the chronological calendar-based um, former paganism in Halloween, well, it's what we Christians do, what Catholics do. We take stuff and we make it Christian, and we flout it in the ugly pagan world's face. The third room is the Crypt of the Skulls. That's what's on the screen right now. Yes. Yeah. Where, we, where we get our, our, uh, our bony friend here. Boy, I can't, I can't do <laughs> what I want with... Okay, the fourth room is the Crypt of the Pelvises. A lot of the, the Puritans are not going to like this one. Even saying pelvis <laughs> is a mortal sin now. <laughs> Did you know you have a bone right there called the pubis? My, uh, my, my Puritan Catholic friends out there are like, yeah, that's, that's a mortal sin to even think about the pubis or to walk through room number four, the crypt of the pelvises. I'm so sick of Catholic Puritanism. Get real, guys. Uh, room number five is the crypt of the leg bones and thigh bones. If this were exactly a, what it is. Yeah, <laughs> you, could, you could guess what this room is made of. Um, if it were a chicken crypt, it would be delicious, right? <laughs> The sixth room is the crypt of the three skeletons. Now, this one's this one is where they they deliver the punchline. The center skeleton is enclosed in an oval, the symbol of life coming to birth. In its right hand, it holds a scythe, a symbol of death, which cuts down everyone, like grass in a field. While its left hand holds the scales, symbolizing the good and evil deeds weighed by God when he judges the human soul. A placard in five different languages declares, they must really want you to hear this, yeah? What you are now, we used to be. What we are now, you soon will be. That's the Latin on the logo. <laughs> Even the Marquis de Sade visited this in 1775 and wrote in his journal, I've never seen anything more striking. Oh, that must be evil if the Marquis de Sade went there. Nathaniel Hawthorne, who nearly became Catholic. He hated Puritans, by the way, as you know from his short stories and, and from The Scarlet Letter. And he described its grotesque nature in 1860's novel, The Marble Fawn. He nearly became Catholic. He knew how anti-Puritan Catholics are, and we were never the bad guys. And even here in this book, Catholic Republic, 
he gave a great quote, a great quote that I use. This is a, a Hawthorne quote. You got to make the mouth move on the... the pale. <laughs> well, because he's dead, right? The pale clergyman piled up his library. He's talking about Dimsdale. Rich with parchment-bound folios of the father and the lore of rabbis and monkish erudition of which the Protestant divines, this is the thesis of Catholic Republic, even while they vilified and decried that class of writers, were yet consumed, often to avail themselves. Protestants read Catholic stuff as they, uh, as they formulated their very sensible political philosophy in the 1700s, particularly the Whigs. And Nathaniel Hawthorne knew it. So lo lots of other cool people visited the Capuchin Crypt over the uh, years. Mark Twain visited in summer of 1867 and wrote in The Innocents Abroad the following. The reflection that the Capuchin Friar must someday be taken apart like an engine or a clock, very bothersome to atheists like Twain, worked up into arches and pyramids and hideous frescoes, did not distress this monk in the least. I thought he even looked as if he were thinking. He does, actually. With complacent vanity that his own skull would look well on the top of the heap and his own ribs add a charm to the frescoes, which possibly they lacked at present. Guys, memento mori. Memento mori, my friends. It's the hollow tide. It's very Catholic. Don't be a Puritan. Don't be a teetotaler, right? Wine's very important to us. Some of the Protestants don't think that's the case. The hollow tide's very important to us because what, they don't have to worry about works, right? They believe in faith alone. We got to worry about works. Well, what's the best thing to chastise you, to chasten you into forming good habits, Aristotelian habits of life, virtuous ones, avoiding sin, remembering your death? It's the only thing that ever works for me when I'm trying to get a good new habit. The real point of today's show now, having all put aside all the Halloween stuff, is to discuss the spookiest Halloween. And this Halloween, 2022, tons of spookiness in the church, the bishops, the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis. It's all bad. The news is always bad now. There's no good news. However, some, some bad news, some more infiltration, particularly in the laity, sneaking into the Catholic Church, is in the political ranks of something called the New Right. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a paleocon. If I, we haven't spoken about direct political ideology much, though I talk about it a lot in Catholic Republic. A paleocon, I believe in subsidiarity. Now, these new, I think some of them are outright Catholic socialists, are stealing into the church by calling themselves post-liberals or integralists, and what they want, I think, I divine, I speculate, is Catholic socialism. Socialists have been trying to get their pernicious philosophy. Can Every strain of it was condemned. Every strain of socialism was condemned by the Catholic Church. All manner of collectivism. You can go check your catechism. All forms of collectivism have been condemned by the church. And they're trying to get it in another way by calling it post-liberal integralism. And interestingly enough, um, they don't invite me to their conferences. They have several a year. It's been on the rise the last two or three years. Catholic Republic is the antithesis of it. And here's the basics. They cast the world, the political world of ideology into two camps. Liberals, which they obstinately refuse to ever define, and post-liberals. And they'll say, when we say liberal, we don't mean the liberal left. We mean the liberal right. They'll never say what liberals are. They're playing on the imagery of a, a Protestant and Enlightenment movement called classical liberalism, which has some ideas very correct, some a few minor ideas and medium ideas incorrect. But the point is, post-liberals will never, because I really think they're just socialists in disguise, they'll never define what liberalism is, and they are very dodgy about what they actually want. They claim to want big government from the right wing. Big government, which is not allowed 
by Catholic teaching. I'm about to prove it to you by showing you a flowchart. Um, and it's it's been all the rage. I'm very sorry to, to report that they had a post-liberal slash integralist conference uh, at the end of the first week of October this month. <coughs> and lots of their shining stars, Gladden Pappin, Sarah Bamari, Adrian Vermeule, Patrick Deneen, made presentations there. That's typical. I'm most sorry to report that Scott Hahn also uh, made a presentation there and seems to be, I think, unwittingly being roped in. I, I don't think Scott Hahn's a Catholic socialist, not by a long stretch of the imagination. He's he's a good man and an important teacher. I've read, I've read uh, his most important book. I like Dr. Hahn very much and respect him a lot, too, when it comes to the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in my view, there are none finer. Okay, but I don't think he, he, I think he's in league with these people unwittingly. And um, so I've been actively, through some of my friends in the bigger, broader media, who are mutual friends with these guys, I've been trying to get invited to these conferences. They will not have me. Most of the big ones, the big lights of the post-liberals have me blocked on Twitter, even though I've never trolled them. Um, they know that Catholic Republic represents a non-liberal response to post-liberalism. Well, I will be debating in three days' time one of these post-liberals, I don't think he's a Catholic, Josh Hammer, you probably heard of him, at Old Miss Law School at lunchtime. And I'm going to try to stream it or at least play it afterwards get a recording and and uh, play it for you guys here on my channel. The post-liberals and the integralists are, the leaders of the movement are all Catholics who are pushing this, but there are non-Catholics like Josh Hammer, like uh, uh, there, there are severals who are not. But I'm, I'm sad to say that it's all Catholics pushing this. And it's very, very, very insidious stuff. Uh, so as a non-liberal who pushes back on this stuff, I say, no, 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 we still need small government. It's required by the catechism, by all the modern popes. I don't mean the bad ones over the last 50 or 60 years. I mean starting with Leo the Thirteenth. okay? So if you can follow this flowchart, I can, I can read it to you. Um, I, think, I think it'll be effective if you understand the principle of subsidiarity. Do we know where my... Yeah, here we go. I'll take this. I'm trying to make the chart a little clearer. It's um, fine if not because I can read it. Yeah, I don't think I, I... They can't read it. It's no problem. Okay. So we start, like any flowchart, how a flowchart works is it proves a point propositionally in a tight way by starting with a question. And this question is, uh, are violations of subsidiarity a grave evil? You see there on the left, are violations of subsidiarity a grave evil? Well, I can prove to you that violations of subsidiarity are a grave evil by reading to you Pius XI in 1931 in Quadragesimo Anno. He wrote the following, Just as it is gravely wrong to take from individuals what they can accomplish by their own initiative and industry and give it to the community, so also it is an injustice and a grave evil and disturbance of right order to assign to a greater and higher association, that means level of government, world government, national government, what lesser and subordinate organizations, he means governments, can do. So if a city or a state government is capable of legislating in a certain field, not whether or not they have legislated in it, but whether they have the competency to do it, then it is a grave evil. Not a conditional evil, but a grave evil, something that may never be violated for the higher government, the, the, the further away level of government to legislate on it. And so let, let's move through the, the flowchart now. This will single-handedly disprove the post-liberal integralists. Um, okay, so is it a violation of subsidiarity? Is it is a violation of subsidiarity a grave evil? Oh, by the way, the catechism borrows this language from 
Pius XI in 1931, 40, 40 years after 1891, he coined the term, but he was coining the term subsidiarity. He made this term up to describe Pope Leo XIII's project in Rerum Novarum. So Leo describes this too. The, the modern catechism has it in, uh, it's, it's paragraph number 79 in Quadragesimo Anno. There are about five or six different paragraphs describing subsidiarity 40 years before in Rerum Novarum. And in the modern catechism, uh, it's somewhere in the 800s. I want to say number 891. It borrows this language from Pius XI. So it is a grave evil to violate subsidiarity. So the only way you answer no at this first uh, fork in the flowchart is to say no, the catechisms and all the Leonine popes are wrong. Leonine popes meaning those after Rerum Navarum. Okay, we know that's not right. So the catechism and all the Leonine popes are presumably not wrong. So answering yes here, it's a, viol a violating subsidiarity is a grave evil. Let's see where this leads us. Here's the next question that makes the flow flow. So must newly proposed post-liberal or integralist Christian regimes avoid violating subsidiarity. That leads to the second fork in the road. The yes means you continue to go on. Yes, they must avoid violating subsidiarity. I'll read what question comes next after that. But first, let's see what you would have to say if you say no. No, in this unique case, you would have to hold, if you hold that the post-liberals or the integralists are right, there may be a valid, a valid violation of the first principle of practical reason, which is do the good, avoid grave evils, or a worthwhile grave evil. There's no such thing as a worthwhile grave evil. It's just that's Catholic Moral Theology 101. You're not allowed to do a grave evil. Um, so if, assuming that, yes, uh, post-liberals and integralists must, in formulating their political philosophy, they must avoid violations of subsidiarity. Here's the next question. So since they must avoid violations of subsidiarity, are local establishments of Christian regimes conceivable? Um, in other words, are localities like city-state monarchies, for example, Malta was a city-state monarchy, there are many others, or small northeastern American states in 1791 all the way through the Civil War, were they competent to form Christian regimes? For example, Massachusetts, yes, that was a Christian state-established uh, covenantist regime. Two-thirds of the original third. 13 states in America had state establishments of Christianity. Whatever the, the, we'll get to that in a second. So yes, they're competent. So you must move to the third fork in the road. You must say yes. Um, if local establishments of Christian regimes are conceivable, there's a little bit of um, subtext here. Subsidiary's definition, remember, is if a, uh, a competency or a field of legislation is conceivable, possible at a more local level. It is a grave evil to to take it away from the, the local uh, government and to give it to a more far away government. I didn't say that because I tried to keep this thing short. So yes, so then you have to answer yes. Malta and Massachusetts were once a thing. So were seven of the other original 13 colonies uh, until... These post-liberals, an early iteration of them in the 1940s, made it illegal to have Christian establishments. They claimed to want integralism. They claimed to want Christian establishments. But early iterations of these post-liberals made it illegal to have Christian establishments on the Supreme Court. Now, they post-liberals would say, no, those were Masons on the court. But they had the same view of jurisprudence is what I'll be arguing on Thursday. Um, but what you'd have to say if you say, if you answer no to this third question, are local establishments of Christian regimes conceivable? You'd have to say, no, establishments of Christian regimes are impossible on a scale any smaller than large nations or empires. Malta and Massachusetts never existed as Christian regimes. See how these no's are a dead end because they posit um, um, antinomies. Things we know are false. That's not right. We know Malta and Massachusetts 
were Christian regimes. So now we come to the fourth fork in the road, and we ask, so does subsidiarity then require recurring to variant local sovereignties on the matter of establishing a Christian regime? Um, if you answer no, you're going to have to say no, a mystery force should be expected to impel the establishment of Christian regimes in non-Christian lands. What mystery force would establish a Christian regime in, a, say, a Muslim country? What would happen? And basically, I, I do a mini, a mini fork in the road off of, off of this no. And the only one that makes sense has only been, in my view, uh, exampled twice in history. The mystery establishment in a non-Christian place of Christian government, why would that happen? Well, if God establishes it, he established the Davidic kingdom himself directly, fine, even though maybe Judaism wasn't popular there. He established it, and that wasn't Christian anyway. That was Jew Jewish. Um, or you could argue in a more indirect way, God semi-directly established the Vatican through Peter. Okay. Even though at the time he established Peter as Pope, it was a non-Christian land. So that's why I have it as a yellow. Fine, if, God if Jesus comes down directly or God speaks through a burning bush or something like that to establish Iran as a Christian uh, regime, then dope. I'm all for it. But if not, then you just have to say, no, there's no reasonable basis for the non-locally popular establishment of a Christian regime in a place like Iran if it's not directly established by God and you have no way of saying why it would be established. In other words, why would the continent-wide huge, it's not even a republic, it's an empire of current America which has violated the subsidiarity of the states to form their own Christian establishments, why would it form a Catholic 50-statewide regime? It's not going to unless God does it directly himself. That's all I'm showing here. Um, it's impossible, right? Catholics, particularly faithful Catholics, are a group within a group within a group. No way that's going to happen. But remember, this question is, so does subsidiarity require recurring to variant local sovereignties? And I say yes around the corner here, and then I duck under. Now I go around, and we, we're headed back left. And the question is, should the manner then of establishing the Christian regime be reasonably expected to follow regime-specific procedures? And again, here, if you answer no, uh, then you'd have to say the manner of establishing the Christian regime should be random but capricious, and you can't explain why or, or how to form a Christian regime if you don't follow the local... And what I mean by regime-specific procedures is if you're in a republic, you follow the republican form of government. That's what we're supposedly in right now, U.S., a republic. Not a democracy, a republic. If you're in a small monarchy, arguably the best form of government, then you, you, you get a Christian regime based on the monarchist way of setting a Christian regime. And then, so I say yes, and I say, well, if the Christian regime is a monarchy, the church has ruled on this before. Uh, we go to the up arrow at the end. Then, according to the rules of subsidiarity... We've done this before. The Christian regime was licitly established by following the sect of the local prince. That was called the Peace of Augsburg. And it just said, hey, once Europe became, Northern Europe became Protestant, we'll just use the prince to decide. You know, once Christendom was being broken up between 1054 and, 10, and 1517, you can no longer just assume that every state's going to be Catholic. Now you have Orthodox, now you have Protestant. So the church came up with a kind of compromise called the Peace of Augsburg. And it was just like, whatever the prince is of a little little local area, like the little Frankish fiefdoms of Northern Europe, that's what they'll be. If they're, if they're Lutheran, the, the whole so, uh, the sovereign area will be Lutheran, little province. If it's Catholic, that little Northern European province will be Catholic. If the Christian regime is a, is a non-democratic republic like early America was, we're not a non-democratic republic anymore. Remember, democracy is corrupt. Democracy corrupts everything. But America was a non-democratic republic at our founding. <coughs> then, according to the rules of subsidiarity, the Christian regime was licitly established by following 
popular sovereignty in the region, the Republican form of government with representatives. For example, the original American First Amendment until the Masonic Supreme Court, early post-liberals, reversed it in 1947. Uh, Massachusetts was Congregationalist, Virginia was Anglican, New York was secular. But the point is, two-thirds of the states were established Christian governments, established Christian regimes, under the First Amendment of the Constitution. You think there's such a thing as a separation of church and state in America because in 1947, in a case called Everson versus Board of Ed, they reversed the Masons on the court, early post-liberals, reversed the meaning of the First Amendment and said that it must erect a wall of separation of church and state. From 1791 until 1947, the First Amendment stood for precisely the opposite. The federal government had to honor subsidiarity, had to uh, not overrule state establishments. Well, in 1947, because of the 14th Amendment, I've talked about this before, they said it meant the exact opposite. Those were early post-liberals who did it. So we have, uh, zooming out, we have a perfect example of the wolf in sheep's clothing, a spooky Hollywood, uh, Halloween image. The post-liberals claiming they want a Christian regime, and we need big government to do it, would violate subsidiarity, even though that's a grave evil, in order to give us an all 50 state Catholic regime. How is that going to work? Well, for one thing, it's not realistic, but more important than that, because practicing serious Catholics who don't contracept are a group within a group, even among Catholics who are already a minority. But more important than being unrealistic, it's to force religion on people by violating subsidiarity is a, a grave evil. Instead, what the Catholic Church has always endorsed even though we've only had the term for about 100 years, is subsidiarity. The local governments, the state governments, as original America stood for, should have Christian establishments the way two-thirds of them did. The post-liberals, early versions of post-liberals on the Supreme Court, were the ones that made this illegal. And this is why they won't invite me to their conferences. Say, you say you want establishments of Christianity? You support substantive due process in the 14th Amendment, which made it illegal. Incidentally, these same post-liberals who love 14th Amendment jurisprudence made it illegal to illegalize a bunch of the ills that they say they want to illegalize. Porn, contraception, sodomy, gay marriage, abortion. Luckily, abortion was overruled by using subsidiarity and originalism. I'm going to be debating Mr. Josh Hammer, big name, opinions editor at Newsweek, in person at Old Miss on Thursday of this week on his post-liberal version of originalism. He calls it common good originalism, which is just subsidiarity hating originalism. It's not really originalism. And I'm going to be saying, no, Dobbs versus Jackson, women's health, which was decided right here south of Mason-Dixon here in Mississippi, where Josh is, is visiting my home state to debate me, was decided based on subsidiarity, original originalism. Mississippi forced that case up. And the Supreme Court acknowledged that, no, we can't make it illegal for the individual states to illegalize stuff like porn, contraception, abortion. Well, they only acknowledged it with regard to abortion. It's still because of the big anti-subsidiarity post-liberal project, it's still illegal for the states, even very conservative ones like Mississippi, to illegalize porn and contraception and sodomy. So they're lying. The post-liberals are lying. And I don't want more good people to be duped by this lie. It's a ruse, I argue, for Catholic socialism to enter into the fold. It's gaining in popularity. It's very dangerous. Anyway, I'll put up the debate on Thursday or after Thursday, it should be good. It's the first crack I've really got at any of the post-liberals, aside from a semi-debate I did with Patrick Deneen on the Right on Point channel um, three and a half years ago. But he saw 
the cut of the defense that I had. And he said, oh, this isn't a debate. I, I mostly agree with you. That's what Patrick Deneen said when I went on right on point. It's going to be good. Wish me luck. The spookiest Halloween imaginable is one which enshrines evil, a grave evil, violations of subsidiarity, collectivism, Catholic socialism. That's even spookier than any of the other things we're dealing with in the church, in the clergy. There is no Catholic collectivism. There is no Catholic socialism. There is no Catholic violation of subsidiarity. Sorry about the chart, everyone. We... <laughs> It took Tim and I like eight hours to make that chart, and it just wasn't even, they couldn't see it at all. It was just, well, it, was, it was a bust. It's, <laughs> let me just say this. It's a proof. It is a proof of my point of view, using the flow chart. That amount of information being condensed that much, I feel pretty good about it. It, it, was, it was tough to get it to be really big. But Maybe we can a, put it on Twitter. Maybe we'll do a we'll picture put it on of Twitter. it on, on Twitter. Happy Halloween, happy Holotide, happy All Saints Day tomorrow, happy All Souls Day on Wednesday. God bless you all day as Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.